I encourage you this morning, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, let's turn together to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. We're actually going to finish out chapter 1 this morning. Habakkuk again, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Last week, um, I began with a quote uh, from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And this week, we will do the same because you just really can't find, there's hard to find a greater preacher um, in, in really the last several hundred years that has greater spiritual insight uh, than that than Martin Lloyd-Jones did when it comes to the Scriptures. And so let me read you this quote here this morning as we begin. He said, it is important for the Christian not only to read the newspapers and to understand something of what is happening in the world, but to understand the significance of events. There are in our time grave dangers confronting the church, and unless she is careful, like Israel of old, she may enter into political alliances to try to stave off the very thing which God has ordained. It is essential that the church should not view things with a political eye, but learn to interpret events spiritually and to understand them in the light of God's instructions to her. What to the natural man is utterly abhorrent and even disastrous may be the very thing God is using to chastise us and restore us to a right relationship to himself. So we must not jump to hasty conclusions, end quote. If you found your way there and with that thought in mind, let us stand together as we read from Habakkuk chapter 1. The Word of God says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty the net and continually slay nations without sparing. You can be seated. Just prior to our verses this morning, we looked last week where Habakkuk had just heard news that had sent him and in fact the entire nation of Judah reeling. Instead of sending national revival as, as Habakkuk had hoped to bring God's people back to himself, God instead was going to send the Chaldeans or the Babylonians a wicked and perverse nation to ravage Judah and to ravage God's people. It was news that no one could have ever expected. No one could have ever believed. In fact, this is exactly what God said in verse 5 when he said, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your day you would not believe if you were told. They could have never thought or imagined that this was how God would bring revival, how God would bring reconciliation, how God would bring his people back into himself. And on the heels of this news, we find the prophet once again calling out to God as we did in the opening verses of chapter one. His prayers and questions of God provide for us again an intimate look at the private communications between a prophet and his faithful God. 
In our text this morning, we're going to see the prophet, we're going to see Habakkuk move really from uncertainty to confidence. And what I want you most to notice today is the process by which he does this. Because it's important for us to understand this process because it is something that we can use in our own lives when we come to a place where we're uncertain about what God is doing. It's a process we can use when we're confused or maybe even upset about what we perceive as an injustice of God. Now, sometimes we we would never verbalize it that way, but we think about those things. God, it's not fair that uh, my, my wife is sick. God, it's not fair that my child died. God, it's not fair that these things are happening. And this is exactly where the prophet was. He looks at these things, and he's, he's questioning, in a sense, he, 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 many commentators say that Habakkuk here in some of his things gets as close as he can to blasphemy, but he doesn't quite get there. Because he, he really calls into question the justice and the mercy and the grace of God. But it's not because he's, he's angry with God. Habakkuk's heart is such that he is deeply moved by his love of God and by what he knows of God. And so he begins to ask these questions. Now, in his sermon on this text, to, to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones again, he noticed a pattern here, which I want to read you, and I would encourage you to write. There's just four simple things here, but I would encourage you to write these down if you're taking notes this morning, because it's, it's a pattern which Habakkuk uses, but it's something that we can use in our own life when we encounter such circumstances. Number one, he said, we are to stop and think. Number two, we are to restate basic principles. Number three, we're to apply the principles to the problem. And number four, if we are still in doubt, commit the problem to God in faith. Let me read that for you again. Number one, we're to stop and think. Number two, restate basic principles. Number three, apply the principles to the problem. And if in doubt, commit the problems to God in faith. Now, we're going to see the prophet walk through every single one of these steps in our text this morning. He's going to stop and think about the, what he knows of God. He's going to stop and think about the characteristics of God. He establishes himself on that ground, and he reminds himself of those things. And as he reminds himself of those things, then he says, now how does what I know about God to be true apply to the problem and the situation which I currently face? And then at the end, although doubts still exist, Habakkuk understands that there are some things that as human beings we cannot and will not ever understand about how God moves and operates, and we just have to trust Him. The first thing that I want you to notice here this morning is the prophet's foundation. This is where he begins to do that first thing that Martin Lloyd-Jones points to, the stopping and thinking about God. Notice there in verse 12, he says, "'Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them.'" to correct. Now, there's several characteristics of God that Habakkuk points out here. And in times of uncertainty, we must cling to the knowledge that we have of God's truth and faithfulness. We must remember the things that we know about who God is. We must take the time to stop and to think. This is often not what we want to do, because as human beings, we are often driven by our emotions. So when something bad happens, the emotion of that moment drives us to make decisions. 
The emotion of that moment drives us to think in a certain way, and we really have to take the time to pull ourselves back, to step out of the situation for a moment, and to stop and to think. The first thing that Habakkuk points out here is that God is an everlasting God. The first part of verse 12 says, are you not from everlasting? Here, what the prophet is attempting to do, and I would think succeeds in doing, is looking past his immediate problem to understand what he knows to be true of the character and nature of God. The psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and to the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before the world came into existence, God existed. Before anything existed, God existed. He always has been and God always will be. God was not born. He was not created. The scripture tells us he is the alpha, the omega. He is the beginning and the end. And as Habakkuk thinks upon this, he is encouraged. Why? Because nations have risen and fallen. Habakkuk knew the history of the world as it existed up until that time. He knew what he had seen his own lifetime. There had been powerful nations that had risen and powerful nations that had been crushed. He had watched even in his own lifetime the nation of Assyria, which had risen to such power, be crushed by the Chaldeans. He had seen Egypt, the same thing, crushed by the Chaldeans. And he knew that time would come and even the Chaldeans would be crushed. Kings and leaders had fought their way to power and had been dethroned and defeated. Countless times over and over that pattern had happened, but the one thing that reigned true through it all was that God had not changed. He had been on his throne ruling and reigning. The events of this world have no bearing or influence on who God is as the eternal God. He always has been and he always will be. Psalm chapter 93, verse 2, your throne is established from of old. You are everlasting. Matthew Henry said, it is the matter of great and continual comfort to God's people under the troubles of this present life that their God is from everlasting. When things seem to us to be in a place where we find ourselves in a state of dismay, confusion, or shock, as Habakkuk was here, we would do well to remind ourselves of this fact that God is everlasting. He always has been and he always will be. We look at our world and our world is oftentimes in in turmoil and trouble. And my friends, this is not new to the world. And we tend to think that what's happening in our time and in our generation is something extraordinary. But all you have to do is just travel back in time. And at any point in time in history, if you were to create a time machine and to plop yourself down at any countless thousands of years prior to this, you know what would be you would see as you talk to the people? You would hear the same kind of conversations that happen in our culture today. Man, can you believe how bad things are? Can you believe how wicked people are? Can you believe how many people are fighting against other people? We have the tendency to, to, to solely focus on what's happening in the, in the context of where we are and in the context of the last, say, 20 to 30 years, and we forget that there has existed countless generations before us. And in all of that time, the cycles of life have happened back and forth, and this was the confidence that it brought to Habakkuk as he realized that through this all, as nations have risen and fallen, kings have risen and fallen, people have done everything that they would do. One thing reigned true is that God reigns and rules forever and ever. So he reminded himself of this fact that God is an everlasting God. The second thing that Habakkuk saw and he reminded himself of was that God was a supreme God. Look there, he says at the second part of verse 12, O Lord, my 
God. And you'll notice in your Bible, depending on your translation, that Lord there is, is all capitals. And when we see Lord in all capitals, uh, that means that the, the term there in the original language is, is Yahweh. And he's talking about God as the self-existent God. God would use this terminology when he would say, I am. Remember when he saw Moses there at the burning bush and he sent him back to Egypt and he said, tell them that I am sent you. Why did did God use such language to describe himself as I am? Well, because God depends on nothing to exist. No one created him. He has always existed and he depends on nothing to be in existence. In fact, everything on this earth was created by God and everything on this earth depends on him to exist. The only reason that you and I are sitting here this morning in this room is because God is allowing us to exist. At any moment, God could speak the word and our heart would stop and we would fall over to the floor. The breath would cease to exist in our bodies because we cannot cause our own bodies to even live. As powerful as we are as human beings, and, and we know that science is, is now trying to do things that 30 years ago would, would, we, we would consider as, as science fiction and fantasy, but they're trying to do things to extend the, the, the longevity of life, to make people seemingly immortal, to give them knowledge beyond comprehension. But you know what? They can come up with all of these things, and in a moment, in an instance, God speaks the word, and it's over. They depend upon him for their existence, but God is outside of all those things because he is Yahweh. He is I am. He is the eternally existent God. The entirety of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been, always are, and always will be self-existent. And so as the prophet thinks about this, he thinks about the everlastingness of God, that God has always existed, but now he's thinking about the supremacy of God, that God does not depend upon anything else to exist. Nothing can cause God to be taken off the throne. Nothing can cause God to be removed from his position. He is eternally existent. One commentator said it is really almost at this moment that the prophet begins to realize that his problems are fading away. Because even with just those two things, there comes a confidence to the believer that really nothing in this world matters. In the grand scheme of things, if we have a God who is eternal, if we have a God who is supreme in self-existence, then what do we have to fear? But the prophet goes on because he's reminding himself of what he knows about God. Thirdly, he says that God is not just a supreme God, but God is a holy God. He says, oh, Lord, my God, my holy one. He remembers the holiness of God. Isaiah said, I am, quoting the Lord, he said, I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. God is holy. That means there is no darkness in him. There is no sin in him. There is no unrighteousness in him. Remember what Isaiah said. He said, Holy, holy, holy. Remember when he saw the Lord, he said, I, I, can't, I, my, I don't even know what to say. We've seen that hymn, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. I don't think there's really a way as human beings that we can accurately understand and comprehend how holy God is. Even to the best of our abilities as we study his word, we see his majesty and his splendor and his glory. But God is above all holy, holy, holy. 
That's why over and over when you see that in the scriptures, he, it's referred to in, in, in three times because it refers to just how great and holy he is. It's emphasized over and over again. First John, he says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We might know seemingly good people on this earth, people that do good things for other people. But inside of every single person, inside of no matter how good or righteous someone may seem, there is darkness inside of them. There is sin that they struggle with. There's things that they do that are not pleasing and, and, and right to a just and holy God. But in God, there is none of that. He is perfectly holy and pure. And as Habakkuk thinks about this, it begins to cause, there's, there's a question that will come back from him because Habakkuk understands the holiness of God. He understands that God cannot look upon sin, that God despises sin. And God doesn't just despise sin, he despises the sinner. The, the, the psalmist tells us that God hates not just the sin, but also the sinner. And we don't like to talk about that, right? Because we've always heard the old adage, you know, hate the sinner, I mean, hate the sin, love the sinner, and that's really an excuse that a lot of times people give to try to acquiesce around what sins people are doing. But God is very clear that if someone is outside of Christ, if someone is in their sin, he doesn't just hate the sin, he also hates the sinner. Why? Because the sin encapsulates who that person is. If we are outside of God, we are not just outside of God, we are in our sin, dead in our trespass and sin. Our sin is the characteristic of who we are before God. And God despises it. He hates sin. He hates wickedness. He hates evil. He cannot even look upon it. Remember when Jesus went to the cross? That, that one moment on the cross when Jesus cried out and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the things that Jesus dreaded most about going to the cross was he knew in that moment when he bore the sinfulness of man upon himself that God the Father would turn his face away from his son because he could not look upon sin. And it struck Jesus with such terror and fear to consider that even just for that moment. And Habakkuk understands the holiness of God. But he also understands that God is a covenant God. Now, this is a beautiful promise here. So be sure that you pay attention. He says there, we will not die. Now, God has already promised that what's getting ready to happen is unlike anything else that the people of Israel have ever seen, the people of Judah have ever seen. That this nation with such fierce armies and such wicked ways are getting ready to come in and to devour them. That's the language that God uses. They're going to come in like wolves and like eagles swooping down to devour them with violence that is going to collect them like grains of sand. But Habakkuk says here, we will not die. Because the prophet recalled that God is a covenant-making God and that God always keeps his promises. Now, I think all of us in this room this morning as Christians, we probably all strive to be faithful and true and to keep our word. But I think we would all readily admit this morning that there have been times where we have not kept our word. There have been times where, by purpose or by accident, that we have promised one thing and delivered another. But brothers and sisters, aren't you glad this morning that God is not like that? God does not promise one thing and give us something else. God does not make a covenant with his people and go back upon his word. 
But God had made a prophet with Abraham, which was renewed with Isaac, renewed with Jacob, and renewed with David. Remember what he said. He said, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Habakkuk remembered this. He remembered the covenant faithful promise of God. Habakkuk could look back at history and see it. That no matter how many times the, nations of Is- the nation of Israel had, had, had veered away from God, how many times they had erred, and no matter how many times they had punished, God had always been faithful to them. Habakkuk knew that no matter how dark the future was, no matter how fierce and wicked the Babylonians were, that God would not abandon his people. The days would be long. The spirit of the people would be pressed low, but the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, God's people would endure. God said in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I've scattered you, only I will not destroy you completely. But I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. There was going to be exile. There was going to be death of many in the nation. But God would keep a remnant. And through that remnant, he would keep his promises and would restore again his people. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 11 through 14. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord and that I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. We must remember this promise as well. God's promise still remains, and he is still a covenant God who keeps his word. Now we are in the time of the new covenant. But remember what God has said. Jesus says, after a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. God has promised us a spiritual life and an enduring life. But remember what Jesus said? Jesus promised this idea, the same concept, that no matter what happened in this world, that God will keep a remnant of his people. Because Jesus says to Peter, when Peter had asked, when he had asked Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? He said, you're the son of the living God. You're the Christ. He says, I will say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. What? And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. There is one thing that we see throughout the course of human history. In modern times, since the the writing of the Scripture, we have seen nations again rise and fall. We saw the Roman Empire rise and fall after the time of the New Testament. We've seen other nations around the world do so. We have seen political leaders rise to great power and authority and then fall to the ground. But one thing has remained true through every single part of that, and that was the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has never ceased to exist. No matter what has happened, God has kept his people. Now, it may be times when it shrinks down and there's a small remnant, but God always keeps a faithful remnant because he has promised that the gates of hell will not overpower the church. God will keep his promises. 
There's an old and well-used saying that says, I may not know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And this is true. We don't know what God is going to do in our time. We don't know what God is going to do in the time of our children and our grandchildren. We hope and we pray for God's mercy upon our nation and upon our world. We hope and pray that God would send winds of revival to blow through this nation and to draw people back to himself. But if dark days do come to our nation, if dark days do come to our world, in our time or in the time of our children or grandchildren, we have this same promise. We will not die. God will keep his church. He's always kept a remnant so that he will continue to accomplish his sovereign will and purposes. I find it ironic that the one thing that the enemy that Satan attempts to do throughout countless generations is to persecute the church with such fiercity. Right now, there are more Christians being persecuted around the world for their faith than at any other time in human history. But the more Satan persecutes the church, the more God grows the church. The more God, I mean, more Satan pushes back against the gospel, the more God grows his church and his remnant around the world. So God is a covenant God. I want you to notice next that God is a sovereign God. Look, he says there in verse 12, you, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. So the prophet now arrives here at a crucial point. Even though the circumstances seem to overwhelm all comprehension and to confuse perhaps even the prophet himself, he now understands and declares that what God is doing is doing his work of judgment, and he's going to do it through the Babylonians. Notice what he says there. He says, you, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. Now, the Babylonians thought that they were great in their own power and their own might, that by their own strength, they were doing what they did. But the only reason that the Babylonian army had grown as large as it had, the only reason that it had the power that it had and that it had seen the victories that it had was because God had allowed it to happen because God was using them as his source of judgment, as his divine correcting rod, which he was going to bring on his nation Israel. They were bragging in themselves. You can just imagine every evening as the Babylonians, would, the soldiers would gather around the campfire, they would all pat themselves on the back and say, look at how great we are. There is no other nation on the earth like us. There is no other army like ours. Look at who we are. But the prophet knew that God was sovereign over all of those things and that none of that was happening outside of God's divine permissive will. There will be times when we can't wrap our minds around the things that happen in our lives. It may be a personal matter. We may go through hurt and pain like we've never experienced before. We can't understand it. It may be a national matter. We see something happen in our nation or around the world that we can't wrap our minds around. But a resolved trust in the sovereignty and the providence of God can help us to endure during those times. And that does not mean that we will not feel sorrow. It doesn't mean that we won't feel hurt or pain, that we will not weep. But it does mean that we can know and trust in God's promises. Promises like found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. 
Do you believe that this morning? Do we believe what God's word says? Do we believe that God says this, that he causes not just some things, not just a few things, but all things to work together for good? It's, it's hard sometimes for even some Christians to understand this because they've walked through seasons that the world tells them, well, this was not fair for you. Perhaps one of the most difficult things that a family could walk through would be the loss of a child. For a young person to pass away, we, we seemingly in our mind have, ha, have a perspective of what a proper amount of time is to live on the earth. Someone lives to say 80 years old, 90 years old. They say, well, they had a good life. It's sad that they're gone, but they had a good life. They had a long life. But if someone dies at, say, 12 or 25 or 35, people say, well, well, what a tragedy. They were taken too soon. No, they weren't. No one is taken from this earth outside of when God has said it's time for them to go. I heard one preacher say that he was talking to someone, they had experienced a loss in their family, and somebody came up to him and said, you know, there was no better day for your loved one to die than the day that they died because it was according to God's perfect plan and providence. That doesn't mean that we don't weep when someone passes. It doesn't mean that we don't experience sorrow in those moments. But we understand that God will cause all things to work together for good. Even in tragedy and pain and in hurt, God is still moving and operating. The prophet looked out at what he could only imagine was going to happen, and he realized that because God is sovereign and because the nation of Babylon was not rising up in their own power but only under his permission, that he knew that he could trust that God was going to handle everything. And as we look out upon our world, we don't know what's going to happen. We look and we see things in, in, in certain regions around the world where there's conflict and war going on. We look at our own nation with, uh, with economic things and we cause ourselves into question what's going to happen with the price of gas and the price of eggs and all these other things. And we can tend to begin to get very anxious and worrisome about what we see. But brothers and sisters, we have a sovereign God who is ruling and reigning over it all. And we must trust in him. But the prophet also points out that God is a protecting God. Look there in verse 12 again. He says, and you, O rock. I remember one time when I was much younger being caught in a thunderstorm while I was out on a hike. It really popped up out of nowhere, like oftentimes storms do in the summer, and began to dump what seemed like buckets of rain. Now, having not expected such an event, I didn't, wasn't really prepared. I, I used to have a tendency, especially when I was much younger, I would just get the, uh, the urge to go on a hike. And so I just drive up towards the parkway somewhere, pull the uh, truck off on the side of the road and just walk out into the woods. So I didn't have a rain jacket, didn't have an umbrella, anything like that. So I began to look for somewhere to take shelter from the storm. Now, if any of you growing up, you went out in the woods, you know that if you just have a small rainstorm, you can oftentimes just duck under a pine tree. Um, and if, as long as it's not a real heavy rain, the pine tree, because of the way that the needles and the branches are, will, will shelter you fairly decently from the storm now, but that's not where you want to be in a thunderstorm. You don't want to be under a pine tree in the midst of a thunderstorm. But thankfully, because I'd walked this path many times, I knew there was a little rock outcropping not far from where I was. 
And I was able to get there and just tuck myself back against the rocks. And as I tucked myself underneath the rocks, I was able to escape the rain and the effects of the storm. And brothers and sisters, life is like this. Storms often pop up when we least expect it. We get sick, we lose our job, a loved one dies, and most of the time we aren't prepared for it. We aren't thinking about it. We aren't considering it. We get into a pattern of life and we think that everything is just going to continue on as it always has. And then when we least expect it, a storm pops up. But there is one preparation that we can have, and that's that we know where we need to go when the storm pops up. Do we know of a place that we can run to when there seems to be chaos all around us? And what is that place? That place is our rock. That place is our God. He is our shelter. He is our sure help. And he is our place of refuge. And this is exactly what Habakkuk is pointing them to. He says, God, you are our protector. You are our source of help and strength. First Samuel chapter two, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. The word rock is used over and over again throughout the Bible to describe that place of refuge that is found in God. We're often tempted to run to all the wrong places. We're tempted to run to our friends, tempted to run to our family, tempted to run to the, to the latest opinions of, of, of psychologists and worldly experts. Most of us are tempted to run to Google and ask to Google all the answers to the problems of life. But the first place we need to run is to the rock. And when we find ourselves in the rock, then we can begin to evaluate everything else we need to do. The prophet here is declaring that he's going to find his security, to find his strength in the great hope and the refuge that is his God. The final thing I want you to notice here in this opening verse is that God is not just a protecting God, but he's a correcting God. Look there at the end of verse 12. He says, and you, O rock, have established them to correct. Matthew Henry said, God's people need correction and deserve it. They must expect it and they shall have it. When wicked men are let loose against them, it is not for their destruction that they may be ruined, but for their correction that they may be reformed. Do we think of things that way in our own life? When we encounter opposition, when we encounter turmoil, is our first response to say, God, what are you trying to teach me in this moment? Or is our first response to say, God, I love you. Why are you letting this happen to me? But if we know God loves us and we know God cares for us, then we must expect and receive his correction when it comes. I don't think any of us in this room when we were growing up, if you grew up in a family that you experienced discipline from your parents, I'm sure there were times that you didn't think you needed discipline. You didn't think that you deserved to get a spanking, or you didn't think you deserved to get grounded or have something taken away. But guess what? The, the correction isn't up to the person being corrected. The correction is up to the one who has the authority to issue the correction. And there are times in our life, brothers and sisters, where we will not see the thing that we need the most, but God does. And he will give it to us, not because he's angry at us, but because he loves us and he cares about us and he wants what's best for us. 
The soon and coming invasion of the Babylonians was sent by God to bring his people back to the truth of who he was. He was going to use this nation as his rod of correction. Jeremiah chapter 46, O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, declares the Lord, for I am with you. For I will make a full end of all the nations where I've driven you, yet I will not make a full end of you. But I will correct you properly and will by no means leave you unpunished. Notice what God says there. He says, do not fear, for I am with you. I'm right there with you. I'm not leaving you. I'm not abandoning you. He says, I'm going to bring correction into you. I'm not going to leave you unpunished. But why does God do this? Well, the answer is found for us in Hebrews chapter 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. There may be some parents in this world who discipline their children out of anger, and if they do so, they are entirely mistaken and wrong. Most parents who love their children discipline them because they love them because they want what is good for them. They want them to learn and understand what is best and what is right and what is true. And it's the same way that God does it for us. God does not discipline us in his anger. He disciplines us in his righteousness and his holiness and in his goodness. The next thing I want you to see is now the prophet has done what he needed to do. He, he thinks about these things and he has now correlated what he knows about God to his current situation. Now he begins to mull over this more. And I want you to secondly notice, we look there at that opening verse as the prophet's foundation. I want you to now notice the prophet's confusion. That may seem counterintuitive, right? That the prophet would come to a solid foundation of who God is, but yet still experience confusion. But this is exactly what happens to us sometimes. We can be solidly committed on who we know God is and His characteristics and His goodness, His faithfulness, His mercy, His supremeness, holiness, covenant-making, sovereignty, all of those things. But then inside of us, then we look at what's happening and we begin to say, God, okay, I understand who you are, but what's happening doesn't seem to line up exactly right. He was still experiencing this great confusion because he knew the truth of who God was, and in his mind, the plan of God, what God was going to allow to do, seemed to contradict many of those characteristics. Now, the prophet had an advantage that we don't have. The prophet knew what was getting ready to happen because God had already laid it out for him. We don't have that ability. We don't know what's going to happen to us tomorrow or next week or six months from now. And in a sense, I'm glad that we don't because I think we would be driven more to confusion, more to questioning if we knew what was going to happen. I think God in His sovereign mercy does not allow us to know more than we need to know in the moment. But the first thing that the prophet had a question about was about purity. Look at verse 13. He says, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And he's already talked about the holiness of God, and now he's talking about the purity of God. And, and the reason that the prophet is looking at this is because he looks at this nation. He looks at this nation who is, who is wicked and evil and unjust and, and so many other characteristics that we could describe. And he says, God, if you are holy, if you are pure, then how could you use a nation like this?
He's uncertain of how God could do this. He's uncertain of how God could allow these things to take place. And what the prophet's doing, he's trying to just reconcile this in his mind. Really what he's doing is helping his mind to come to grips with this. That even though God is using the Babylonians as evil and as wicked as they were, God is not granting approval of their actions. They're still going to be held accountable for their sin. They're still going to be held accountable for the wickedness that they do. God is not giving them a stamp or a seal of approval saying, okay, you're going to do these things and I'm not going to hold you accountable. So first, the prophet asks about purity. But I want you to notice, secondly, then he asks about favor because he goes on and he says, you cannot look on wickedness with favor. He sees what appears to him as unjust favor granted to the wicked. Psalm chapter 10 says, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. The prophet was confused because he says, God, I understand you can't look upon evil. You're not a God who approves them. He says, but as I look at them and I see all that they've been able to do, he says, why would you grant them favor? Why would you grant them the ability to do these things? What the prophet is having to do in these moments is as he looks at each one of these issues is to remind himself of those things which he has already talked about in the previous verse. He's reconciling these things in his mind. Because he understands that God is not going to approve evil. He's not going to look on wickedness with favor. The third thing that he asks here is a question about silence. Look again at verse 13. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? And now he says, why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Now we know that the nation of Judah had behaved wickedly. Otherwise, God would not be sending this judgment and correction upon them. But in light of comparison, if you were to compare the nation of Judah with the, with the nation of Babylon, you would see that even in their wickedness, the nation of Judah was far less wicked than the nation of Babylon, at least in the eyes of the prophet, because they were God's people. They were not entirely given over to debauchery. But the prophet had prayed, and the prophet had prayed, and for so long there seemed to be silence from God. And really this perceived silence of God is a situation of concern that's been shared by many of God's people over the years. Job chapter 19, verse 7, Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there is no justice. Psalm chapter 35, You have seen it, O Lord. Do not keep silent. Do not be far from me. Psalm chapter 83, O God, do not remain quiet, do not be silent, and O God, do not be still. Proverbs chapter 31, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. The prophet knew what God was getting ready to allow to happen. And it seemed to him that God was not speaking in a way that was proper or correct when he understood the attributes of God. But what the prophet had to reconcile is that even though the nation of Judah might not on a worldly sense be as wicked as the nation of Babylon, that before God they were guilty. 
The Scripture tells us that if we've broken one of the Ten Commandments, we're guilty of breaking them all. Because disobedience is disobedience. Sin is sin on a certain scale with God. And so as the prophet looks at this, he asks this question, God, why are you remaining silent? But God was not inactive in his silence. We need to remember that. There are times when we will pray and ask God to do something, and it seems that he has not spoken, or it seems that he is not speaking. But what had God said? He said that he had been raising up the Chaldeans the entire uh, time that the prophet had been praying, and boy, he perceived as a silence from God, God was moving outside of the nation of Judah to raise up this great army over a period of time to bring in his correction and his judgment upon the nation. We must remember that when God seems silent to us, that he is still faithful. He is still working and operating, even if we don't see what is taking place. The final thing I want you to see in this section, in verses 13 and 14, is he has a question about creation. Look at verse 14. He says, why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? He's really describing now the nation of Judah, and he's going to go into this fishing language more in verses 15 through 17. But basically what he's saying, he says, why have you made us like a helpless people? Why have you made us like a people who cannot defend ourselves? Because he understood what was getting ready to take place, and he understood that all of this had been providentially designed and orchestrated and caused to happen by God. And the prophet looks back and says, God, in your covenant faithfulness to us, why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you literally leading us out there like fish in open water with no protection of ourselves? He was confused but he's having to remind himself of who God is. The last thing I want you to notice here, we talked about the prophet's foundation, the prophet's confusion. Finally, I want you to notice the prophet's understanding. Because it's here in this that the prophet begins to now reconcile what he knows about God, what he cannot understand about his situation and how he ties those things together. Look at verses 15 through 17. He says, the Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook. And drag them away with their net and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things, their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? The prophet has come now to a clear understanding of God's purpose and plan in the events that are about to take place. But he's understandably grieved because he understands the severity of the Babylonian force. One commentator said this, It is our duty to be affected both with the inequities and the calamities of the church of God and of the times and places where we live. But we must take heed lest we grow peevish in our resentments and carry them too far so as to entertain any hard thoughts of God or lose the comfort of our communion with him. What this commentator is saying is that we should be affected by what we see around us. When we see wickedness, when we see the things that are happening against the church and against God's people, when we see things happening in the world around us, we should be driven and affected by that. He says, but we must be careful that when we look at those things and see those things, that we don't grow resentful against God, that we don't allow it to be carried too far 
that we begin to have hard thoughts, he says, of God or to lose comfort of our communion with him. The prophet was asking these questions, but he did not lose his confidence in God. He did not lose his trust in the faithfulness of who God was. In these verses, the prophet describes this brooding group, the Babylonians, and their actions using the language of fish and fishermen that he introduced in the previous verse. First thing that I want you to notice there in verse 15 is the nature of the enemy. If you're a fan of reality television, you've no doubt seen there are many shows that follow the lives of men and sometimes women who make their lives as commercial fishermen. During the appropriate seasons for whatever fish they're trying to catch, these men work tirelessly with one objective, to bring in as many fish as they can. That's their one focus, that's their one task. For many of them, it's just a, a few months out of the year that they have the ability to go out and to catch this certain type of fish. So when they're on that boat, they're not taking their time, they're not relaxing, they're not hanging out, playing cards with one another, they're fishing and giving everything they can to catch as many fish as they can. But you know what I find interesting is, is they take no consideration of the feeling of the fish. They don't ask the fish, hey, hey guys, would you like to be caught? Would you like for us to take you out of your home and to take you to a restaurant somewhere where they'll put you on a plate and serve you? It never crosses their mind, right? And it's, and it's silly to foolish to even think that the fisherman would call, would call into consideration how the fish feels about being caught. But this is the language that Habakkuk uses here to describe the Babylonians. He says, they will bring all of them up with a hook and drag them away with their net and gather them together in their fishing net. He says the Babylonians are going to come in like a fisherman does with the fish. Now, in Jesus' days and in the time of the Old Testament, they didn't have commercial fishing ships as large as we do today, but it's pretty interesting how large of nets that they actually could use at this period of time. Nets that would take several men, sometimes upwards of, of five to ten men, to get the net out and to bring it in and to catch as many fish. Why did they make them so big? Because as many fish as they could get in at one time, they wanted to draw them all in. And so this is how the Babylonian army was going to be. It was going to be completely business for them. They weren't concerned with what the nation of Judah thought. They weren't concerned with what God thought. They weren't concerned with what the prophet thought. They had one task on their mind, and that was to conquer as many nations, as many people, to get as many spoils and as many victories as they could. And they were going to sweep in like fishermen with their nets and with their hooks and their spears and going to accomplish that one goal. And that was to bring everything they could unto themselves. Now, at the end of it all, notice what he says there in verse 15. He says, they rejoice and are glad. At the end of it all, they are celebratory. Why? Because they've ended their fishing season with a record catch. They have conquered nation after nation after nation. And so every time they have a victory, they rejoice and celebrate because they've done exactly what they set out to do. And it would be even more so with Judah. Because they understood that these were the people of the God of the Bible. They didn't respect the God of the Bible, but they understood who these people were and what they believed about themselves. And so for them to be able to come in and to crush the nation of Judah, to take over Jerusalem, to exile God's people out to Babylon, and what a victory it was for them. What a, what a victory they would seemingly be celebrating because they had accomplished something so great and in their own strength. 
I want you to secondly notice the idolatry, though, of the enemy. Look at verse 16. He says, Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. Now, how peculiar does this sound to us? They're offering sacrifices to their net, burning incense to their fishing net? What does this mean? Well, this means that as they look around and they see what they've done, they're not giving credence to God for their victory. They don't believe in God. They couldn't give credence to Him anyhow because of their wickedness. There's no way that they could say, thank you, God, for allowing us to be so wicked as to accomplish all of this. But they celebrated because as God had said in verse 11, they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. They looked at themselves and what they were offering sacrifice. They were basically self-worshipping themselves. They were idolatrous because they said, look at what we have done in our might, in our strength, and in our power. And so they were offering sacrifices, offering praises, and this just ultimate act of idolatry. We have done this. We have accomplished this. In fact, Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, it says, The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of what? Of my majesty. Now, if the king of Babylon had understood one thing, it was that he had built nothing. He might have a great victory. He might have a great army. He might have a great empire, but he's only there because God had put him there. Nations and leaders and rulers rise and fall at the hand of an almighty God. And he was only there because God had allowed him to be there. But they worshiped themselves. They worshiped their own accomplishments. They worshiped their own strength and power. It was Albert Barnes who said this in such a simple statement, but it is so true. Whatever a man trusts in, that is his God. Whatever a man trusts in, that is his God. The Babylonians credited their wisdom, their might, their power, their, their prowess, their armies with the victory. And for that reason, they worshiped that their God was themselves. And so they worshiped themselves. They trusted in their own strength. They trusted in their own power. They trusted in their own ability. And because that's what they trusted in, that's what they worshiped. Whatever a man trusts in, that is his God. What is your God this morning? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your own ability? When you think about success in this life, do you think of it this way? Well, I, I work hard. I can do all these things. If I work for a number of years, I can put this amount of money in my 401k. I can put this amount of money in life insurance. I can do this. I can do that. I can do this. And then I know I will have success. Do you trust in your abilities? You say, oh, well, I'm, I'm talented at these things. And because I'm talented at these things, I know I'll find success here or find success there. Do you trust in your family? Well, I come from a long line of people who are well-respected. I know my name and my family will, will carry me where I need to go. My friends, our money, our talents, our abilities, our family name, all of that can be gone in a moment. 
stock market can crash. You could lose the ability if you're, maybe you're a craftsman, use your ability to lose your hands. Your family name can be tarnished with something that comes out about it and the reputation is ruined forever. If you're trusting in those things, if those things are your God, then you have no hope. You have no victory. You have no promise. But if we trust in the Lord, trust in his goodness and his faithfulness, then we have nothing to fear. The future is not dark and dismal when we have a constant faith and trust in God because we know his promises. Seeing the nature of the enemy, we've seen the idolatry of the enemy. We don't want to be like they were. Thirdly, I want you to notice the accomplishment of the enemy. Again, verse 16. He says, because through these things, the reason they worship themselves, the reason they worship their power and their prestige, he says, because their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Their idolatry and their celebration had root in the recognition of all they had done. When they looked at everything they had accomplished, they thought, well, how can we not celebrate? How can we not worship? How can we not be happy? Because all of these things, look at how much we have amassed to ourselves. Look at how great the catch was. Look at how much money we have, how much power we have. We must be reminded that victory, accomplishment, and the accumulation of wealth is not necessarily the sign of God's favor. And in fact, here, it is a sign of God's judgment. With every battle, with every victory, with every new addition, with every new captive, with everything that they celebrated, they were actually heaping up to themselves greater judgment from God that would be measured out to them in due time. God was using them. God was allowing them to do what they did, but he was not going to allow them to do this without one day bringing judgment and correction, not just to the nation of Judah, but to the nation of Babylon as well. The final thing I want you to notice here is the totality of the enemy. Look at verse 17. Will they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without sparing? As the prophet come to the end of all this, this is that moment where He couldn't wrap his mind around some things, and so he was just going to have to leave it in the hands of God. He says, will they continue to do this? Will they continue to slay nations without sparing? He understood that the zeal and the force of the Babylons wasn't going to stop anywhere, anytime soon. As they moved forward, as they gained more, they were going to be driven with a bloodlust to continue and to continue on. Jeremiah chapter 25 it says, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. The final question directed towards this relentless power of the Babylonians asked the questions, how long? How long will God not do something? And the prophet does the only thing that he can. He leaves the question with God. And he waits for the answer. He waits in uncertainty, but he also waits in complete trust because he knows who God is.
We'll see in the coming weeks as the prophet was now already beginning to understand that the hand of the Lord will not always be held back. That same verse I just read to you from where God was talking about what was going to happen and that the nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years continues in this way. Then it will be when the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation declares the Lord for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and I will make it an everlasting desolation. I will bring upon that land all my words which I pronounced against it and all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against the nations. God would bring justice against those who he had used to bring correction and judgment to his people. As we close, I want to remind you of what we gleaned from Habakkuk in these opening verses. Each of us have, currently are, or will face times in our life where the circumstances seem overwhelming and perhaps confusing to us. It is in those times we must remember what the prophet did. Remember those four things and apply them to your life. When things happen, first, we must stop and think. We must remember God's promises. We must remember who God is. Then we restate those basic principles. We think about, okay, if God is holy, what does that mean? If God is just, what does that mean? If God is sovereign, what does that mean? And then we apply those principles to the problem that we face. If God is holy, how does that affect my situation? If God is just, how does that affect my situation? If God is sovereign, if he's a covenant-keeping God, how does that apply to my situation? And then if we're still in doubt, we commit the problem to God in faith because we understand that even in the times that we can't understand, that God is still moving and operating and accomplishing his purposes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your time of your word that, Lord, we can look and open up these things and be instructed by you. And, Lord, being so encouraged that even in a moment where the prophet felt so overwhelmed by what he saw before him, that he was able to look back and to remember who you were and to find hope, to find trust and to find security. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to do the same in the midst of moments in times, maybe now or in the days to come, where we feel much the same way, that, Lord, we would remember who you are. Remember what you have done for countless Christians before us and to know that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That your goodness, your faithfulness, your majesty, your holiness, your righteousness, all those things, Father, none of those things have changed. You have not changed from beginning to end. And if you have not changed, you will do in the same way that you have done for thousands of years. And then we can trust and know that as we remember who you are and we apply that to our problem, that, Lord, we can find great hope in you. God, and direct our hearts as we come to your table together this morning. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.